Well, good morning, friends. My name is Michael, and I'm the lead minister of New Life. We're a family of churches, of which Coolangatta is one of three at this stage. And it's a deep honor to be with you today. Um, I, I was uh, meant to be down at Coolangatta a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, but lockdown happened. So it feels like I haven't been back in a couple of months. So it's great to be with you all this morning on Father's Day. Um, I brought my son with me, so he has to spend Father's Day with me. He doesn't get a choice. And then I got annoyed with him, so now he's in kids' life. So uh, that worked well. Not really, not really. It's that if he was here, he would be on my leg. So on that note, friends, would you join with me as we pray? God, uh, as we come before you today... I just pray that we would be able to still our hearts. Holy Spirit, help us to adore you, to hear from you today. Turn down the distractions of our worlds. That we might turn up the voice of your Holy Spirit because we know you are speaking. Shift us, change us, mold us, transform us, Lord God. And as always, Father, less of me, more of you we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I shared this story with um, our Rabina congregation at the start of this series that really encapsulated for me why faith matters for our work. I remember when I first realized that. I was 23 years old, and I was at a conference for young Christians learning about how to know the gospel, know the, know the culture, and translate between the two of them. We spent the first half of the week of this conference kind of learning about the Bible and God and who who he was. And the last half of the week, we spent it being run through real life scenarios in business and thinking through, how do you apply the gospel to this problem? And I remember one day in particular changed my life. There was this businessman, an entrepreneur. He stood in front of of about 400, uh, 400 young adults and he started to tell us a story. And he said, tell me how you would make a decision in this moment. He told us that he runs a business. And the purpose of this business is to be a middleman between millionaires and Christian entrepreneurs. These entrepreneurs who want to invest money in local third world country economies to see them blossom and grow, he would take their proposals to millionaires who had the money and kind of transfer loans to make sure the kingdom was being forwarded in countries all around the world. A great idea for a business. And he told us of one moment in particular where a man came along and asked for millions of dollars to start a small business franchise in a third world country. He had business plans, strategies, and proposals. And so the millionaires gave him a large sum of money, about a couple of million dollars. And they were excited about what God was about to do. Three weeks later, the man vanished as with, as, and all the money was gone. The Christian leader turned to us, this room filled with passionate, uh, obnoxious, kind of you know, righteous young adults. And he said to us, what would you do? And we're like, we would go hire the CIA and hunt him down. Like there is grace but consequence at the same time. Like get him, pay the money back, work it out. And so we talked about it for 20 minutes. Then we grew silent. He said, okay, let me tell you what happened next. He said, we employed a third party. They found him in a third world country. And so we went and found this man and we brought him back to Australia and we asked him, what he had done wrong. Because you see, the problem was is that someone had to pay the millionaires back. The business model was that the small businesses would earn enough money, they eventually would pay back the loan. And so there was a deficit here that this man, the middleman, was responsible for. Someone had to account for the money that was gone. So he pulled this, this man back to Australia and they sat down and they talked about what had gone wrong. And he said that he'd made some bad business decisions. He grew afraid when he lost all the money and then he ran because he wanted to protect his family and his well-being. And this Christian businessman turned to his room filled with young, young adults and said, so what would you do? And we're like, 
send the guy to jail. Like God is a God of justice and grace. He can forgive and still hold you accountable. And we went after this guy. We called him like, you know, terrible Christian, a hypocrite, you know, all this stuff. We were applying everything we knew about godliness and justice to this situation we thought had been resolved. And then we all grew quiet. And the businessman stood in front of us and said, do you want to know what I did? And we're like, yes. He said, well, instead of me telling you, why don't I get him to tell you? Bob, would you stand up? And in the middle of the room, we fell quiet as the very man we'd been prosecuting stood up in the middle of our midst. Bob walked down the front. He said, Bob, tell him what we did. And he said, well, I, I met with, with this guy and, and we chatted and he realized that, you know, I, I wasn't a bad guy. I've made some bad choices. And, and so what he did is he went into his own personal savings and paid back the millions of dollars of loans on my behalf. He wiped my debt clean. He said, you're forgiven. Now come work with me and I'll teach you how to have done it better the second time. Because he saw potential and a future in me. And now I'm his 2IC and we're seeing God do amazing things. And in this room, we're all sitting going, we are the scum of the earth. <laughs> right? That was the first time I realized that it matters what you do. But it also matters why you do it. Faith influences everything for the Christian. Not just part of it. All that we do. This is why, friends, this series is so vital. It's not just an idea, a nice thought of, hey, isn't it be great if you know, we're nicer people? No, no, we don't start our lives with our jobs. We start our lives recognizing we are the called out sons and daughters of God. And the way we do what we do matters. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. I know who some of you are. Uh, I just can't see behind all your masks. You might be a lawyer, a doctor. You might be retired. You might be a mother, a father, a student in between jobs right now. But if you've asked the question, does what I do matter to God? The answer is yes. John Mark Comer says it like this. I think I may have turned this on. John Mark Comer says it like this. We go to the next slide. There we go. In the church, he says, we often spend the majority of our time teaching people how to live the minority of their lives. The purpose of this whole series has been about this. We believe God cares about what you do with your hands tomorrow. He cares and he has a say. In fact, we've been walking through this series and we start with talking about the redeem the time, how God wants us to join him in redeeming the world. Then Scott preached a great message about pioneering the future in the first week of lockdown. We should dream big, not for our glory, but the glory of God. Talked about how we should resist, not yeah, resist with Sabbath, not resist the Sabbath. We should resist work with Sabbath. We resist idolatry. We resist the patterns of this world by resting well. We should bless the city and pray for the world we live in. Cool and gather should be a better place because this church is in the middle of it. We believe we should live on purpose. And we should, last week, we should have conversations that matter. Conversations that point to eternity. You know, today on the second last week of the series, I wanted to talk to you about the role of prayer. And our prayer matters in the kingdom of God, but it matters in what you do for a job. Sometimes we think prayer is about our private relationship with God, but I believe prayer forms you for mission. Sometimes I think maybe, maybe we think prayer is all about us pleading to move the hand of God. Does prayer move the hand of God? Yes. But before it does that, it forms us. The primary thing prayer does is it forms us for the mission God has called us to. Before it forms your work, it forms the one that works. I don't believe you can be effective without prayer in the kingdom of God. 
I don't believe you can step out into the world without prayer, knowing what your mission is, because prayer molds us that we might mold the world as agents of God's goodness and God's grace. Prayer is not peripheral. It was so not peripheral for Jesus that he had three years to change the history of the world, and yet he still had time for prayer. Yet how often do we schedule out prayer? How often do we push that to the side because it's the one thing we don't have time for? I want to argue today, friends, that prayer should not be a, you know, a maybe about your day, but central to your day. For the Christian on mission, prayer is not peripheral. It is central. Why? Because prayer doesn't just form your work. Prayer forms you for your work. Let me say that again. Prayer doesn't just form your work. It forms you for your work. That's why Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he knew critically one thing he had to teach his disciples was how to pray. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples see Jesus praying. They go, teach us how to pray. And he teaches us this prayer that we also find in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus steps in and says, let me tell you how to pray. First of all, pray in quiet. Don't pray so everyone can hear you. It's not a competition. It's not a show. He says, don't pray using flowery language. God is not Shakespeare. He didn't write Romeo and Juliet. He's not impressed by your vocabulary. Pray simple words and don't repeat things like the Pharisees and Sadducees do, thinking they're amazing because they know what a thesaurus is. No, just pray what's on your heart. But then he realizes that when you rock up to someone and say, just pray, they're like, yeah, but what do I say? What do I say? Jesus, in his goodness, turns around and goes, let me tell you what to say. He says, this then is how you should pray. And friends, I want to suggest, if the only thing you did every morning was to pray this prayer, it would form you for your work. There is power in this prayer because there is intentionality. Jesus doesn't just piece together nice-sounding sentences. There is such beautiful intentionality around what Jesus does with our prayer that forms us for mission in the world. What does he start with? He says this, Our Father who art in heaven. Actually, says, Our Father in heaven. I got Shakespearean then. Told you not to, and I did it myself. Hallowed be your name. Now, this is weird. Now, we don't think it's weird because so many of you have heard this prayer so often. You've, you've heard it sung in different you know, radio hits. I think Cliff Richards did a cover when I was like five. Other people have heard like massive gospel bands cover this. We're like, yeah, sure, our Father out in heaven. That's a really lovely idea. This is one of the most re revolutionary and controversial things Jesus said. In fact, how Jesus talked about God ended up being one of the reasons why they wanted to put him to death. When Jesus started to say, my Father, that offended the Jews. Why? Because they never called God Father. In fact, I'm, I, I, I may have this wrong, but the only Old Testament writer that really it said Father was Isaiah. Most others would call God Adonai, El Adonai, El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi. These are words that described God because the word for God, which was Yahweh, was so sacred that none of them would say it lest they offend the righteousness and holiness of God. See, for a Jew, to call God anything that was intimate, that was personal, in their mind, pulled God down off his throne and made him less than the Almighty God. And here Jesus steps in and goes, this is how you pray, our Father. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, this is how you pray, to Jesus' Father, to that guy's dad. There's a really weird moment here. Can you imagine when you were young? 
and you go over to your friend's house. I don't know if you had sleepovers. I had sleepovers when I was little. There's always that moment when you meet your friend's parents. I was always told to address them as Mr. and Mrs. Wrigley. I'd be like, hey, Mr. Wrigley. And if Scott's like, you can call me Scott. I'm like, sure thing, Mr. Wrigley. Like, that's just how I was raised, right? But, if, but let's say, like, you know, you go over to the house. He's like, oh, what should I call your dad? He's like, you can call him father. You'd be like, that's creepy. He's not my dad. He's your dad. Stop trying to kidnap me into your family. Like, we actually need to pause for a moment and realize this is weird. Because we have this understanding, and I want to offend for a second and then get real, where we think everyone is a child of God. That's not true. Not everyone in the world is a child of God. In fact, what everyone is before Jesus Christ is an enemy of God. We have made ourselves enemies of God. Someone who wants nothing to do with God, who would prefer to be angry at him or walk away from him, to, to believe he's not real, is not a child of God, not because of God's will, but their own. They have stepped out of it. And I just want to say it, because sometimes we can like, make people feel nice, be like, we're all children of God. No, we're not. Because this is why. This gets controversial when you realize how good the news is of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the gospel. He's saying to people who are not children of God, let me tell you what you will be able to call God. You get to call him Father. And they should have recoiled at that and gone, no, I shouldn't get to call him Father. In fact, if they knew their actual estate, they would say, I've rebelled, I've hurt God, I've walked away from God. God is not my Father. He is a far distant being who is angry with me. And Jesus goes, no, 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 our Father. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says this. That by dying a death that we should have died after living a life that we could not live, Jesus Christ does not just become our King, our Lord and Savior, but if you choose to follow Him, He becomes your older brother and His Father becomes your Father. It's the gospel of adoption. This is the beauty. That when we pray, we get to say, Father. We get to say, Father. Friends, I don't know what Father's Day is like for you. But please, please hear me. Do not let the sin of patriarchy or the sinfulness of distant dads, absent dads, or non-existent fathers ruin the image of the way God wants to reveal himself to you today. God is, is not a human father. They are, even myself and Scott, we are broken reflections of a perfect God. And if you today have been hurt by fathers... Know this, that shows you your father on earth was not God because your father in heaven does not long to hurt you but comfort you and wield you into his arms to call you his son and you get to cry out, Abba, Father, as adopted sons and daughters of God. Our Father who art in heaven, friends, this might be a Father's Day that hurts you, that is painful because of your memories, but God wants to heal you and say you had a heavenly Father who grieves with you, but he also wants to call you home. Our Father who art in heaven. Do you know God is Father today? Hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow someone's name? It means to recognize there is great power. Let me explain like this. If I said to you, hey, guys, um, good news. Hugh Jackman's coming to the 10 a.m. service. Yeah, right? Some of you are like, well, that's why Michael wears RMs. This is a good day. Like, we're here. You'd rock up. Why? Because I invoked the name of Hugh Jackman. If I said Hugh is coming to this 10 a.m. service, you'd be like, Who's you? If I said Jackman, you'd be like, who's Jackman? But Hugh Jackman, suddenly we've got the press here. Why? Because there is power in the name of Hugh Jackman. You're like, I know who that is. You have hallowed the name of Hugh. You've set it apart, elevated it. Even though he's just a man, you've placed great importance of it. Now, let me, let me describe you something else that doesn't happen. Friends, the Holy Spirit 
He's present at the 8 a.m. Sure. I mean, he was here last week. That's, that's the difference. And what Jesus does is he says, our Father on in heaven is close and he's intimate, he's personal, but always hallow the name. That we hallow the name of men, but we don't uphold the name of God and realize that he's your Father. But it is amazing that this holy, perfect God steps down and steps into your reality and into your world. We, we care more about the names of humans than we do the name of God. And what, what Jesus is teaching us to do here is he recognizes that when you step out into your work, workplace, the first thing you need is not to know what God wants you to do, is not to know, you know how the plan is unveiled. You need to know who he is. Because there will be something that happens in your workplace that says you are not good enough. You have no value. You are insignificant. You are your wage. You are your job. You are your success. And the person who has positioned themselves and said, I am the son and daughter of a father who is in heaven, and his name is hallowed above every name. They will forget Hugh Jackman, but his name will last for eternity. Then there is a confidence that says, it doesn't matter what happens to me today. I have a gospel confidence and a gospel humility to operate in my workplace out of a place of approval and acceptance for I have a Father in heaven, hallowed be his name. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's positioning his disciples for a mission that prayer would form them. He starts by adoring, adoring the Father in heaven. And then he moves so powerfully and says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this should also confuse us because there is almost a moment where it sounds like we're giving God permission. As if God's waiting for us to go, hey, if you want to, you can now step into the world. If you want to, you can set up your kingdom, but only because I said so and prayed it. And, and, and I'm just saying that because I'm trying to help us recognize we can get so familiar with the Lord's Prayer. We forget how important it is to dissect it and realize the power of what Jesus is inviting us to pray. Why would we need to say your kingdom come? Doesn't God's king, isn't it already here? Isn't it done? How? Why? Because there must be another kingdom. Why do we have to say your will be done? Because there must be a choice of whose will is done. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's identifying, friends, we live in a world of many kingdoms and many wills. And when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we recognize that there are three different wills that you step in. There's your will. Your will. We don't come to God and say, my will be done. So we lay that down and we recognize that sometimes the greatest obstacle to God moving in our world is our own will. God, you fall in line with me, not God, I fall in line with you. Your will be done. Sometimes it's my will. The second kind of will is the human will. That even right now, when you step out into your day, some of you will confront different people's wills. You go to a roundabout, you have a battle of wills. Who's going to go first? You go into a workplace. Who wins the argument? There is a battle of wills. But there's a third will that we don't talk about. The reality that we live in a spiritual age. That not only is it the will of God, but there is a will of darkness. There is a will here that seeks to, uh, to, to destroy. It seeks to kill. It seeks to steal, as the Bible tells us. 
And we need to realize it's not like God is not power, more, any less powerful and couldn't control it, but he's looking for a people who have already chosen to ally with rebellion and darkness to come to him and say, I choose to forsake those wills and align myself with yours. This is the beauty of the free will of God. Now we're like, isn't God sovereign? God's eternal plan will be enacted, will be fulfilled, but his temporary will is dependent on your obedience. The, the, the will of today. We have control over that. In fact, John Mark Homer says it like this. Notice that Jesus assumed God's will was not done on earth, hence the prayer. For Jesus, heaven is the place where God's will is done all of the time. On earth, God's will is only done some of the time. Because on earth, there are other wills at play. God isn't the only one with a will, an agenda for what he wants to see happen in the world, and the capacity to carry it out. Friends, here we believe, I was talking to Scott about this before the service, I said, hey, just want to make sure we're on the same page here. We believe that there are forces out there that are not godly, that seek to, whilst they have lost the war of eternity, they are seeking to win the battle. And when we come before God and we recognize, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, and we step into a boardroom, we step in knowing there are wills at play here, wills of humanity and flesh, and the wills of powers and darkness and spirituality. And we are aligned with a God whose name is hallowed, who sits on the throne of eternity. And we say, your kingdom come now, your will be done. There is a power there that forms us to see our work as a greater outworking than just your will, but God's will. This shifts everything with how we engage with the world, with how we engage with our work. Every work environment we enter, we need to recognize we are not guaranteed to be outworking the will of God subconsciously. This prayer calls us into spiritual warfare. It calls us that we might not only will that you know, God would do good for us, but do good for the world through us. This is good because prayer forms you for your work. Can you see how Jesus is teaching us to be shaped? Hey, look to the Father, know your approval, know his greatness, but then also plead and intercede and ask God, your kingdom come on the Gold Coast, your will be done in Kulingada, aligning ourselves with God. Jesus goes on and he steps into the next part of the prayer. Oh, one too far. And he says, give us today our daily bread. Just let's pause for a moment and look at the beautiful way. I want to use the word strategy, even though I don't think Jesus was thinking strategy. How strategic Jesus is. What does he do before he actually starts to petition for personal need? He directs our attention to God, his character, his love, his life. He, he, He allows us to know what God has already done by sacrificing his son. He's given us approval, everything we could want. We are justified. We are saved. He then moves and goes, there is kingdoms at play here, but align yourself with the kingdom that's already won the war. Come and know the kingdom of God. And in that moment, only after knowing God's character and God's will, he then steps in and says, now, now let's get personal. God, give us today our daily bread. Because it's through the lens of seeing God rightly and desiring his will fervently that we bring our requests for personal deliverance. Keller says this, we come with our needs expectant of positive response, but we do so changed by our satisfaction in him and our trust of him. We do not come arrogantly and anxiously telling him what must happen. Many things we would have otherwise agonized over, we can now ask for without desperation because we know our father's gonna give us good gifts. For he is our Father. So when we ask him for things and they do not metastasize the way we want them to, it is not because we are trusting in what he'll do. We're trusting in who he is. 
But the other beautiful part about the daily prayer, Martin Luther says this, of give us today our daily bread, is this reality. It doesn't say give me today our daily bread. It says give me and that guy down the back. Give us, and not just us and him, all of us. Give us our daily bread. Why might someone in a society be denied of daily bread? Because of systems of injustice, oppression, of inequality, of economic corruption. And Martin Luther, this great reformer, says, when you pray, give us today our daily bread, what you're actually saying is, God, reveal to me the places in my world where people don't have daily bread because of corruption and out of line with your will. That we might be in a world where all people are provided for, where all people have a chance to eat and have their daily needs met. Father, reveal that and move against systems of corruption. How might it be in your workplace if you start to go, God, where is corruption at play and how are you calling me to step into it? The Lord's Prayer is a communal prayer. It's not a private one. It's all us. Can you see how Jesus is shaping us for our work? Where in your world is God saying, give us today our daily bread, that the systems of corruption are stopping people from seeing their needs met and goodness made known? Timothy Keller said, I've already talked to you about that. He goes on in Matthew chapter 6 and he finishes with this closing kind of two verses. And he says, and finally, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is, I think, the hardest part of the whole prayer. Because Jesus moves into confession and forgiveness. Jesus moves into confession and forgiveness. And I want to ask you a simple question today. When was the last time you came before God in confession? When was the last time you just came before him in repentance? Because one of the most crucial identities of those who follow Jesus is that we are a forgiven people. Not just once, but every day. And it is so important to recognize Jesus doesn't go, thank you that you have already forgiven us, but God forgive us now, which means that we must still sin. We must still need God's repentance. When was the last time you got real with God and said, I don't have it all together? This is Jesus permitting that because your workplace doesn't need a perfect Christian, but someone who just knows where to go to get help. C.S. Lewis says it like this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Why? Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. One of the biggest issues, I think, in Christianity today is that we have become receivers of forgiveness and we have become gatekeepers of forgiveness. We love the idea that God forgives us, but not that guy. And I can tell you why. He's, he's, he's dirty. He's not a good guy. Not Scott. He's like hypothetical. But here's, here's what Jesus seems to insinuate through the Gospels. If you do not give forgiveness, you have not received it. Let me say that again. Like This is in the parables. Jesus is very clear. If you do not give forgiveness, you have not received it. Why? Because you will only ever be able to give forgiveness to the level that you have understood how much you have been forgiven. And this is crucial because until you get to the depths of your brokenness, you will not be able to forgive the depths of other people's brokenness. And in the world today, we have Christians who are marked more by bitterness than grace. Why? Because you think that you're superior because you got forgiven. Rather than pointing to the need and the grace of God that we are a forgiven people, so we should be forgiven. We should be a forgiving people. 
C.S. Lewis goes on to say, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. Unless you're a conduit for forgiveness, then friends, Jesus would suggest you have not actually been forgiven. And could you just, just imagine with me, what would your workplace be like if it was marked by the presence of forgiveness? Where that email of passive aggression was forgiven faster than it could be addressed. What would your workplace be like if you were a person who let offense roll off you rather than stick to you? Why? Because you see the cross where our offense was washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. What our workplaces need is not people who can know how to be bitter, but can call out justice and administer forgiveness with the same hands. This is pivotal and important. So the question I would ask you today is, do you know how forgiven you are in Christ? There's this beautiful story that I heard once of a woman. She worked for a law firm, and she was young, and she'd been entrusted with a really serious case for a client. And she ends up really stuffing it up, so much so that she knows that it is such a bad mistake, and she's on probation that she is actually going to probably get fired. So she goes before her boss in tears and she says to him, hey, listen, I know the board is going to ask and I just need to tell you what happened. And he said, just, just leave it with me. He then went to his superiors and he took full credit and responsibility for the failure. She'd never seen this. In her workplaces in the past, she'd seen her bosses take responsibility and credit for her success, but never for her failure. And she came to him and she said this. She said, why would you do that? Why? He said, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a, not a thing. Don't worry about it. She said, no, 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 tell me. And he turned to her and he says, because there was a time when I stuffed up. And I know a Savior who forgave me of my deepest sin. Who am I to not offer forgiveness elsewhere? And so I just try to live a life where where I can, I show grace that other people might have a second chance. And she said the next line, she goes, so where do you go to church and can I come? Why? Because sometimes, friends, forgiveness is the greatest form of evangelism. Jesus finishes the prayer and he says this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is many times in our world and in our day where we will be tempted to not follow the will of God. But what we can know is that God's will is not to tempt us, is not that we might fall into sin. But the reason why I feel like this finishes the prayer is that we might say to God, hey, I don't want you to lead me into temptation, but I'm also not going to lead myself into temptation. I'm also going to be aware that there is an evil power at work here that seeks to pull my attention and my affections away from you. God, step in and deliver me from that. We live in a world that says that your bank account matters, that everyone should want to drive a Tesla that we actually should aspire to idolize money, sex, fame, and power. And this prayer encapsulates us and finishes us off and says, protect us from the plans of the enemy that we would be part of the kingdom of God. And this prayer is a gift. It's given to us to form us for our work. But it's drenched in gospel truths and realities. It's a gift to you today that you might be formed by the gospel.
that you might be formed by truth, that you might be formed by the power of the living reality of Jesus Christ, that before he forms your work, he would form your heart. And so I would ask you a couple of questions today. Do you know God as Father? Or does that offend you? And I just want to be real. Can I suggest, does it offend you more because of humanity than because of God? Would you allow God to redeem that today? Second thing I would ask is, are you a receiver of forgiveness or a conduit of forgiveness? Does forgiveness flow through you or does it stop with you? These are markers of the Christian life. These are markers of people called out to renew, restore, redeem the world. And it's on offer for you today. So what I'd love you to do is bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And just, if one of those two things apply to you, just open your hands in front of you right now, just, just on your lap. Lord Jesus, I come before you today and I just identify that some of us have dads or fathers on earth who have passed away, they're absent, or maybe we just have a really hard relationship with them. God, may they, those wounds and those hurts not stop us from knowing you as our Father, that death will never separate us from you, that no powers on heaven or on earth will ever stop us from knowing your love or, or being able to access your love. That God, you want to teach us what a father looks like. Lord, there are some of us today who we know we've got bitterness in our heart. When we're talking about forgiveness, God, I just sensed, I really sensed that some of us had names pop into our head and we started to say, everyone but them. And in so doing, God, we, we've stopped even being receivers of forgiveness. And we're starting to hold on to the very poison which is breaking this world. So God, I ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, if we would be willing, show us our need for forgiveness. Overwhelm us that our darkest day is known by you and is redeemed by you. That when we look at others' brokenness, we might see their darkest day, but a Father in heaven who is able. Move in power, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.